السلام عليكم وعليكم السلام ورحمه الله One second, as I am loading up the class. Anything strange? Oh, wait, here it is. Alrighty. <laughs> so attendance is dwindling. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmadufu an nasalli ala Rasulihi al-Kareem. Amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala, and we seek blessings upon the Prophet. May peace be upon him. Uh, no, Sami, I'm not taking attendance, but uh, I'm glancing at how many people are are in the chat. Maybe I should take attendance. Okay. So continuing our exciting exploration of the Bani Israel, the children of Israel. Now we're going to see that their story is going to take a turn for the darker side of things. One of the points we've been exploring over the past couple of classes uh, uh, has been how to process, how to understand their questions, their requests, their demands. Are they actually challenges to authority or are they uh, are the objective statements. And, and a deeper point is that uh, regardless of how we perceive the children of Israel, how we perceive the Bani Israel is in some cases secondary to the lessons in each of these sections. So for example, uh, uh, in Ayah 49 and 50, we're seeing that Allah Ta'ala liberates people from even the most horrendous torment and trial. And, and a point to take from that is that you and I, no matter how dark a situation is for us individually or collectively, should still have hope and trust that the help of Allah is near. And then we're going to revisit all this looking at it, at it in terms of uh, collective dynamics. But then we have Musa alayhi salam who goes away for 40 nights and then people turn to the calf and then they were forgiven. And a lesson we can take from this is that when leadership, uh, effective leadership is gone, then it becomes easy for people to turn astray. You know, I remember in a meeting a long time ago, uh, I don't remember even barely the context of the meeting, but someone said that the reason we have managers in jobs is because we need them, that people otherwise will start going in all kinds of wrong directions. And even though they did wrong, they were still given, uh, they were still given um, forgiveness. And thus we should find a place for gratitude. And so this is something also for us. Likewise, uh, that the Kitab itself, in our case, the Quran is given to us for guidance for us to partake of for the purposes of guidance then sometimes there's a process for seeking forgiveness. And essentially for us, the process of seeking forgiveness 
is almost always to express the request for forgiveness for them. Theirs was a fascinating world in which the fantasy or the, the metaphor, metaphorical realm seemed to be literal with all these, uh, all these miracles they were seeing. And thus their process of gaining forgiveness had, was a very physical uh, act. Whereas for you and I, part of the process is to seek forgiveness. And what is it that's leading us astray? It is our inner uh, appetite, our nafs, and that has to be taken control of. That's literally one of the functions of Ramadan. The act of fasting in being walking taqwa is this act of taking control of our nafs. And a side point, I've mentioned the story to some of you before. Uh, I had this student uh, who refused to believe that anything was haram. Uh, and he would partake of every haram, uh, whether it's consumption or action. And, and he felt that was part of authenticity. What you find for a lot of people, it's the search for authenticity. What is the real me? And for him, part of the process is to exercise all of your appetites. And so then I asked him, when was the last time you were happy? And he couldn't remember. And he, however, loved Ramadan. He loved Ramadan. And so putting the math together, what is taking place? When you are indulging in, when you're feeding your appetites, you'll have the short fix of satisfaction, but pretty soon your appetite is going to again say, feed me, feed me. And so then you're going to seek to feed it again. You're going to have the short fix of satisfaction. And again, it's going to demand you feed me. And so your default more often is going to be sadness, a very deep sadness because of this unfulfilled appetite. And his life was also literally upside down. He was doing every haram, literally. Uh, don't know how much he, he actually had a taste for the halal. And he would be awake all night and asleep all day, meaning his appetites were completely in, in control of him. But why did he love Ramadan so much? Because Ramadan, you're keeping everything locked up. You're keeping your nafs locked up. And that for him uh, uh, was a breath of, of fresh air, perhaps even uh, uh, a breath of, of survival. So that's how it is in our language. And inshallah, we should go with the attitude that Allah Ta'ala is accepting our repentance. He is tawab. Which then brought us to I-55, where we were really discussing, are the children of Israel, you know, are they innately wicked and challenging when they're asking Musa al-Islam, where they're saying to him, we're never going to believe in you until we see Allah outright. And a point for us is sometimes we need those moments to energize our iman. And sometimes, however, we misdiagnose what we need. Sometimes you might need an event that gives you the inspiration to make your prayers. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you might have a miraculous event happen, but it's not going to be enough to get you to, to, to fulfill your obligations to Allah. More often than not, it's a matter of just being brutally honest with myself. This is something I have to do. And the things that I have that are preventing me from doing it are often my own internal fears of consequences and such. But if I just take a moment and think, if I put my face on the ground for these next 60 seconds, standing, bowing, prostrate for these next 60 seconds, what have I lost? Yeah. Nevertheless, that is not to undermine the seriousness of trauma in terms of how we process things. So that's what they were seeking. And then they were given the thunderbolt and then they were brought back to life. And again, what should these things compose? What should these things compel? Uh, 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 gratitude. 
Now bringing us to where we are today, Mosaba, see you have a question, but I'll try to get to it uh, uh, in the end, inshallah. So here are some things that Allah Ta'ala did for them. We shaded you with the clouds. We've talked about this. And we sent you manna and salwa, manna and quail. And so, so the point uh, I made before is that in some modernist readings, what seems to be the case is that this material is easy for them to, to access in the sense that you know, these quails were around, I don't know how indigenous quails are to that environment, but it was easy for them to capture them and then to, to slaughter and cook them. And then, but it seems as though in the older, more traditional books, uh, the food was literally, literally provided for them, already cooked, already prepared. <coughs> and if we believe already the previous things listed above, like the sea was split for them, then this is not all that far-fetched. Nevertheless, that becomes secondary for our purposes. And they are told, And so eat from the wholesome of what we have provided for you. Tayyib, in terms of fiqh, in terms of Islamic law, is basically anything that is not detrimental to your health. So eating, uh, like later on in this same surah, we're going to be told, eat what is halal and tayyib. Halal would be that which is, uh, uh, what's the word, that which is just lawful, and tayyib, that which is not detrimental to your health. Some people, like I often translate tayyib as, uh, as wholesome. Uh, so tayyib, balik al tayyib manipak. So that's what Sadia is making reference to right now. Uh, perhaps. Uh, at least in Urdu, uh, Pak. Please translate for everybody what we mean by by Pak, okay. like the state of Pakistan. Yeah, clean, pure, absolutely. Okay, and then we have this last point. They did not wrong us. Actually, no. Yeah, they did not wrong us. Wama Valamuna. But what? they wronged themselves. This is the repeated point we've been making, that when you are doing wrong, number one, you're obviously not wronging Allah. You're wronging yourselves. But even if I do a wrong to you, from a dunya perspective, you are the victim. From an akhirah perspective, I'm the victim of my behavior. Again, once again, what's the math? From a dunya perspective, let's say I steal your money, and, and so from a dunya perspective, you've lost, I've gained, I've taken advantage of you. From an akhirah perspective, I have violated your right by taking this money. And thus, out of my good actions, out of my hasanat, I have to pay you back, which means I've lost some hasanat for, because of this action I did in this dunya. So what that also means is that from a dunya perspective, I've done you a harm. From an akhirah perspective, I've done you a favor. I've literally given you some of my hasanat. This is the point I have to make because, as you know, from a community perspective, but especially from an undergraduate perspective, gossip is a huge, huge, huge problem. And this is a point I have to make in almost every single khutbah that, all right, when you're slandering someone, when you're gossiping about someone, you're literally giving them your hasanat for free. Okay, so so I fifty seven is is nice and simple and straightforward. Allah Taala is saying, "All right, 
we gave all this to you. And we said, okay, partake of the good of what we have given you. But what did you do? You started wronging yourself. This is the first direct reference in terms of what we've covered to the children of Israel doing wrong. Everything we're saying before is interpretation. We're taking hints from the text, trying to argue whether they're being good or bad. Now it's categorically clear. Okay. That Allah Ta'ala gave them these luxuries and then they did wrong. But they didn't actually wrong us. They didn't do anything for us, meaning Allah Ta'ala. They have wronged themselves. So now we get to their arrival in terms of the Holy Land. Okay, Sami's question, uh, is it specified what they've done wrong? That's what we're about to see. One of the things that they've done wrong. So this is Jerusalem. Again, we said, So enter this village and eat from it whatever you'd like. Where does this sound familiar? We've heard a passage like this. Eat whatever you want in this place. When did we hear it before? And feel free to either type it or say it. Jannah, yeah, Adam, peace be upon him. Remember one of the points we mentioned, uh, we, I mentioned, is that just about everything we find in the introductory section, we're gonna see it manifesting in different ways in the story of the children of Israel. Just like how they were to seek repentance versus how Adam and Eve were taught to seek repentance. Okay, so eat whatever you want. What can we infer from here? That the manna and quail that they were being given wasn't sufficient. They wanted more. And so now we're beginning to see the manifestation, the actual clear manifestation of lack of gratitude. It could have been that the whole story this far was an illustration of lack of gratitude. That I'm saying we could argue back and forth, but now it's becoming very clear, this lack of gratitude. Or you can see now the lack of gratitude is reaching a boiling point. So eat whatever you want, as much as whatever you want. Okay, But you have to enter the gate sujadan, prostratingly. And you have to say this word, which would be the equivalent for us of being, of saying tawbah or astaghfirullah. Okay, this word of repentance. So if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to the Aqsa campus, you'll actually see this Bab Hittatun there. That is said to be the actual place. Um, Although that uh, I have mixed thoughts about because if you go to the actual Aqsa, it's it's underground. We get the Bab Hittatun is is above ground. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. Okay. And then what are they going to be given? You seek forgiveness? Again, You seek forgiveness, then you're forgiven for what was potentially this lack of gratitude by not being satisfied with the foods that we've given you. And then, and we will forgive you for your sins. And we increase the the people who are doing good in good. Okay, So that's what you need to do. You can enter the town, eat whatever you want here. But just enter in sajda and saying this astaghfirullah type word. And now everything falls apart. Okay. So those, the wrongdoers, those who do wrong, 
change the words. So they change it to some word, depending upon which commentary you read, to something like just something random, like wheat, W-H-E-A-T. And again, depending upon which commentary you're reading, they enter in reverse sajda. So imagine I'm standing in front of the Kaaba and I go down in sajda. Okay, so you can picture that. Now imagine I'm standing from the Kaaba and I do reverse sajda. What have I just aimed at the Kaaba then? It's more than disobedience, it's an act of rebellion. It's an offense. And it seems like in some narratives, they entered like in some sort of a spider walk. But whatever the case may be, it was not prostration. So here's the question to think about. Why would this happen? And I'm asking, think about it from a rational perspective. And to help make the point further, let's jump to the life of the prophet, peace be upon him, although this is being revealed in his time. When we look at the, the story of the Quraysh, it's easy to write them off as evil people. You know, look at them, they're burying their daughters, they're oppressing people, they're stealing the wealth of people. And without disregarding that, including that, try to look at their choices as rational. And, and so, so, you know, why is it that we said Abu Jahl is, is fighting off the Prophet, peace be upon him, to the point that he's insulting him, he's throwing, you know, the entrails of animals on him, eventually going to war against him. Um, he's arguing that, you know, they can't let the children of Israel, they can't let Banu Hashim, that clan, take over the Quraysh, okay? Which sounds rational, even though his instinct, initial instinct, is irrational, because he has no problem with the theology. He listens to the Quran, agrees that it's wondrous, you know, or we might say that the Quraysh didn't want to lose their power over society, right? They want to keep status quo. And here the Prophet is, peace be upon him, the most oppressed classes in society, the women, the, the enslaved, he is liberating them. And he's even putting rules on how to treat the animals and such. Um, try from a rational perspective to figure out why would they do this? The command is enter prostratingly, say this astaghfirullah word, they say some other random word and they enter essentially the opposite. Any thoughts? Uh, who's speaking? Uh, Iqbal? Yeah, I was thinking that the request has already been granted. So now the, 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 all the previous action was rebellion. So now no matter what, whether they do sizda or oppose it, they're going to get it. Okay. So you're saying they're doomed. So might as well, you know, be like shaitan and say, all right, I'm never going to prostrate. You created me from fire. You created them from clay, meaning something like that? Yes. Okay. So that also seems to be the, rep the repeated uh, sentiment, Sharik is saying because of arrogance, and then right above Sharik is the children of Israel are too proud to enter in prostration to admit that they did wrong. It's possible that the problem is arrogance. And so, so first, let's take a, a step back. Who is making this decision on how to enter? So this is now another point to mention. We are post Musa, peace be upon him. Good. 
according to some readings, because we're going to see Musa up here again in a couple of ayahs. But so the point I'm making is if Musa is not there, alayhi salam, then who's making this decision? I'm suggesting that it is their scholars or their leaders who are making this decision for them, telling everybody, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm suggesting that there's something subtle about scholarship that, uh, that is much more pronounced in our traditional Islamic scholarship versus academic scholarship. And that is the quality of your character, the quality of your humbleness. That if my character is not solid, if my intention is not solid, then I am running an increased risk of, of wrong opinions. In the general Western Academy, and this is not an insult to the Western Academy, I'm just saying in terms of how it operates, your character is not related to your scholarship. So many of the biggest figures we revere in terms of their character, they're horrible people, right? Einstein was not a very good person. Uh, uh, Nietzsche had his own issues. Go back and look at the behaviors of the founding fathers who were brilliant thinkers, founding fathers of the United States, yet had slaves and even had relationships with their slaves and such. And so, so what I'm suggesting is that, uh, that they, uh, because of wrong intentions in their hearts, are rationally coming up with these fatwas. So it's not contradicting what you're all saying in terms of arrogance. I'm putting the arrogance more on the scholars and leaders who are them advising them as such. Okay. And then leading everybody down with them. A subtle key distinction that I'm making. In any case, the, the bottom line is their behavior was one of defiance. Their behavior was absolute uh, arrogance, not unlike Shaitan in response, who himself refused to do a sajda. And here they are refusing to do a sajda. So they're behaving like Shaitan did, the accursed Shaitan. Good. And now what happens? Good. Um, they are then hit with a scourge from the sky pestilence from the sky. And now, what else do we see in their behavior? Fisk. Think back to, we spoke of the four types of people, the Muttaqi people of Taqwa, the Kafir people of Kufr, and the Munafik people of Nifak, and then the fourth one was the Fasik. And how do we define the Fasik? The shameless rebel. That is the point that they've reached here. So I am suggesting that this ingratitude is getting deeper and deeper throughout the entire story. And now it's manifesting as defiance, okay. as open defiance. Okay. Uh, professor, if we read this um, as an issue with the scholars, are we assuming that the, the rest of them are kind of going along with it? That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. Okay. But it's also that the scholars in theory should be above what the, the lay people are. Uh, 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 and in theory, so, so should the leaders. I'm not distinguishing between the scholars and the leaders here because that I don't know what's present. But the point is that the advisors are giving them bad advice. But it would be fair to argue that the advisors are probably not that much different than the lay people. That the lay people are sheep and they're, that are being uh, 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 put in. 
Okay, so so this is what has taken place so far. Related to Suleiman's question, is it safe to assume that these eyes are in chronological order? Nope, because you know I mentioned that uh, uh, in terms of how the history is often taught, Musa al Islam is not part of this part of the story. Meaning he is leading them, he dies before they get to Jerusalem in biblical narrative, because we're about to revisit Musa al-Islam. So again, what is the Quran giving us? It's giving us point by point lessons, not necessarily in chronological order. Okay, so what we're also seeing now is because of this defiance, now they're having these, these other uh, uh, problems playing out um, 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 in, in terms of their life. Uh, Musab, uh, did he touch the ox's fur to gain more years? That I'm not familiar with um, in terms of source material in our sources. It could be there, but I'm not familiar with it. Okay, so now, what if Musa is back? And so I'm suggesting chronologically, the event with Jerusalem is actually later, and this, this, uh, these next two events are, are earlier. But again, that's, that's, that's secondary to the lessons. So, when Musa prayed for water for his people, we said, strike the water with your staff. So, when did this happen before? Easy question. Staff and water. With the splitting of the sea. Yes, mashallah. Yeah. And then there gushed forth 12 springs and everybody knew their watering place. So this is now bringing in full circle. Well, that was good. So we, that's uh, bringing in full circle uh, uh, our earlier question about who are the children of Israel. And so we were saying, Israel is Yaqub, alayhi salam. Yaqub has 12 sons. And then the 12 tribes of Israel are the offshoot of those 12 sons. The two sons that are most appreciated, of course, are Yusuf and Binyamin. There are names for the other ones, but I've forgotten all the names of, of everyone else. And there's a difference regarding who are the mothers of, of those two versus everyone else. But nevertheless, 12 tribes. And so each one went to its, its watering place. Okay. And then once again, what is Allah saying? Kulu washrabu okay. So eat and drink from the rizq that Allah Ta'ala has given you, but do not do what? Do not start causing corruption in the world. Uh, what is this connection between eating and corruption? Is there a connection? Is there a connection between eating and behavior? And so what I'm asking is, does the food I eat have consequences on how I conduct myself? What do you all think? I mean, an easy example would be that, all right, if I'm drinking alcohol, then my, my moral compass is going to be evaporating and who knows what we're going to do. Audubillah. But what if, you know, what if I'm eating meat that is not zabiha? Or what if I'm eating, you know, meat that is stolen? So we have the case of Abu Bakr in, uh, this is in his latter years, which is also in his Khalifa. He had a servant who would go and get him food. And, and then every single day he'd ask the servant, okay, where'd you get this milk from? You know, and was it paid for with, with halal money? And was it, was it obtained in a halal way? Where'd you get this from? And he, he was that scrupulous, that detail-oriented, that he's asking that about everything. And then this one day, Abu Bakr is either tired or he's occupied, and then he takes the food, and then the servant says, hey, you don't ask me where I got this. 
and he says, where'd you get this? And then uh, the servant mentioned that this milk that he got came from, from illicit means, but he got it anyway. And Abu Bakr immediately started gagging himself to get rid of every single drop of that, of that milk, gagging himself to the point that blood is coming out to make sure that he doesn't consume any of that. So this would relate to your question, Shadik, um, relate to how the food was obtained. So is there, uh, is there an effect? If we ask uh, many uh, Desi and Arab mothers, they would absolutely say, of course there is. But is that just an old wives' tale? Society saying haram food bought by haram money or haram sources is not beneficial. Immorality affects the character slowly. That's what I'm suggesting as a possibility. That it might be a slow impact, but food that is partaken of, uh, either haram food or through haram means, uh, um, can affect your spiritual slash moral compass. Not immediately. Uh, but has that potential. And it's something that can perhaps span across a generation. I'm saying that as a suggestion, as a thesis, but I'm still always in the search for a text that is more categorical. You know, there is the hadith attributed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, where he speaks of the servant who is making dua, yet his income is haram, his food is haram, so forth and so on. Uh, But uh, a point to consider. And so what I'm suggesting is that there may be a cause and effect here, that they were given halal upright food, chose something else, and then that could have contributed to the corruption. Okay. The way someone eats the amounts, someone eats absolutely. Okay. And then again, they're told, eat and drink from the provision of Allah. Do not commit uh, uh, this corruption. Okay, let's actually stop right here is now the story is going to get even worse in, in, in just a moment. But now what we're seeing, remember the overall arc is the decline of the children of Israel. Now the decline is getting faster and faster. The slope is getting more and more steep. So uh, let's uh, open the floor for questions. And let me try to get this chat box going. And feel free also to chime in with uh, on the voice. Okay, does this not immediately relate to the last ayah too, as they committed a corrupt act? Yeah, I would say in terms of the organization of the surah, or the organization of the passage, this specific section seems to be talking about consumption. The previous section, this is an important question, the previous section seems to be organized by just the process of leaving um, uh, leaving, uh, servitude, leaving slavery, and then we have the section where Musa has gone away, And so it's related to matters of faith and then when he comes back, what they're seeking. And now this seems to be related to consumption. So, so, so an important point, that's good that you asked that question, uh, uh, Suleiman, that, uh, uh, that even though things may not be in chronological order, they seem to be in order by topic, in relevance of topic. Sami, could we see the city entrance as a metaphor for entering paradise? Like if you enter the Akhra, uh, uh, exit the dunya in sajda and in repentance, you'll also be able to eat uh, whatever you want. I would absolutely say yes. Yeah. Uh, and so there are some people who may have the desire to enter paradise and they are going to do exactly the wrong things. Uh, let's see. Uh, other questions? I'm scrolling up. 
Uh, Leith is asking, do we still have that word in our tradition, hittaton, I think you're referring to? Uh, hittaton, every reference I've seen of it is referring to this moment. So I don't know of it being used uh, any, in any other capacity. So, uh, other questions? Uh, Musab is asking, could it be argued that Bani Israel were morally wrong to a degree? I mean, perhaps the way I'm framing it is that they have these seeds of, of uh, ingratitude that uh, for a period of time they might have still been fine, but the ingratitude is getting worse and worse and worse as they are still being given more and more and more. And then it leads from ingratitude to misconduct. And then misconduct to outright rebellion. Uh, Asma, I-58, how did Bani Israel get the command to enter the city of Musa? Uh, they say if Musa is not around. Okay, good question. So this is more in terms of a biblical narrative than, than our sources. Uh, Musa's assistant is Yusha. And Yusha is also the one that Musa salam, was going to visit Khidr salam, with. This is Surah Al-Kahf, Surah 18, the cave. That, you know, Musa, part of the story is when he's on his way, he's with his assistant. And they're trying to, they have to, they have to get off at the stop where they lose their fish. And they come up at this place where the seas, where the rivers are splitting. Their fish escapes, but they keep going. And then Musa al-Islam is getting hungry and, and then realizes, oh, wait, we were supposed to go where the fish was and, um, and where we lost our fish, so they go back there. But that was Yusha. And so in biblical narrative, it's Yusha alayhi salam, who's also a prophet, who is then leading the children of Israel into uh, uh, Jerusalem. And so that would be the answer to, to where would they get the command from. You mentioned nafs is locked up. How is nafs locked up? I've heard the opposite. Bigger shaitan are locked up while our nafs is still there to follow the habit of doing wrong during Ramadan. Please clarify. Oh, very good question. I'm saying you're, or a better term than, than saying nafs is locked up is your nafs is kept under control, at least when you're fasting. Uh, a lot of times with iftar, then we just let loose. You know, we're almost at that point, we're pretty much at the point in Ramadan where everyone's stomachs have, have, have shrunken and, and they're still eating the same amount for iftar. And so everyone's just moving in slow motion. You know, if there was not this quarantining, the best would be to go to stores like a Target or something where there's a large Muslim population, just so you can watch everybody walking in slow motion because they can't move because they're eating the same amount they ate last week, but their stomachs have, have shrunken. So I'm saying when you're fasting, your, your nafs is being put under tremendous control in all kinds of different ways. So that's what I meant. Iqbal, when was the event uh, of Strike the Rock? It was before the splitting of the sea. Strike the Rock. So one, uh, take your staff and hit the ground is the splitting of the sea. And that's when the sea is splitting. Another is, is much later when they're wandering in this desert and they're thirsty. And so Musa uh, then, then hits the staff on the ground. And then this leads to this eruption of, of these 12 streams of water. Moment here. What was the hasnat value of, of wronging someone or being wronged in the Akhirah? Is there a way of knowing or is it just a, a general way? There's only a general way. It would be nice if we had specific numbers we could assign that, all right, if you tell a lie, you know, it's equal to, to 10 points. If you kill someone, it's equal to 100 points, you know, so forth and so on. Um, what's the, uh, I don't want to give anybody wrong ideas. What is the sayat value of gossip? in relationship to zina. So zina, unlawful fornication, one of the worst things. 
What is gossip equal to in relationship with Zina? Anybody want to know? Want to know or guess? And this is not giving you permission to Zina, obviously. Gossip is equal to 60 Zinas or higher. That's how bad gossip is. Uh, let's see. Uh, along the same line, the question is nafs fitra. How and if are they different? So, so nafs ruh fitra. So fitra, think of it as your tendency, and your natural tendency is to turn to Allah. Your natural tendency is to recognize that boundaries should not be crossed. Boundaries of right and wrong. You should not cross into the wrong. That's your fitra. Your nafs is either referring to your base appetite, which we often call your nafsal amara bisu, this is the voice that just keeps saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. And that's what I'm referring to here when I'm using the word nafs. Sometimes nafs is just referring to yourself. Uh, whereas ruh is this other thing that perhaps gives you animation about which we have very, very little knowledge. And so, so a lot of times this is a big issue in translation, especially of Sufi texts. It's hard to figure out, are they translating Nafs, are they translating ruh, or are they translating alb, your heart? Uh, now, keep in mind, I'm also giving you a general construction of, of the human. Uh, throughout our tradition, we have multiple constructions. This is, seems to be the most common. Uh, Yusha is Joshua. Yes, thank you for that, Stephanie Mirza. Uh, Musa, what happened to the family of Musa al-Islam after the event of the bush? Good question. So uh, he is leading them, and... Um, you know, they're, they're moving along with him. You have his wife, whose name I've forgotten. And, and then, uh, uh, yeah, in fact, I don't know what else uh, happens beyond that, now that, uh, that you ask. Salams, I was having a conversation on the topic of riba. I was surprised to hear that it was permitted for, from the non-Muslims in our particular condition. As minority in a Muslim land, it sounded like a very Jewish outlook. Any comments? Uh, that, so I don't know if that's connected with anything in the text. Um, uh, this is an argument. Okay, so, so to give you the, the short version, there is the argument that if you use the old paradigm of, of Darul, uh, Darus, uh, Darul um, Harb, you know, and then Darul Salam, so you got the, the land of Muslims, and then you have the, the land of war, that uh, Muslims should not even be moving to the land of war, which would be non-Muslim lands. But if you do, then a lot, or if not most, of the rules of haram and halal do not apply at the collective level. Meaning you can partake of things like riba, you can take the partake of other things. You're not, no one's ever going to say it's okay to kill, right? Uh, but because of the difficulties associated with living in those lands, um, it is not that it's not uncommon for people, traditional, traditional scholars to argue that those things are acceptable. That, that's, uh, that's how the logic uh, flows. So it's built on this, this whole structure of, of thinking, which at the level I'm speaking about includes the separation between Muslim lands and non-Muslim lands. And non-Muslim lands are often looked at by default as being hostile. <coughs> I mean, some even argue you can't even take a Quran into non-Muslim lands. Relating to your response, nafs rufita, any connection between Plato's tripartite theory of the soul? I would say there's definitely uh, influence from that because some people will speak of nafs al-amara, nafs al-lawama, and nafs al-mutma'inna. Nafs al-amara, this is the commanding self, nafs al-lawama, which is like your conscience, 
and and um, so this is the one that's keeping you in check. And nafsul mutma'inna, as as yourself at peace. People will speak of this. One school is, is that these are three voices within you, influencing all your choices. And I would suggest that probably uh, relates directly to to uh, to, to these uh, uh, to Plato's structure. And then um, further, uh, uh, other people just look at these as levels of closeness to Allah. You have the person who is basically an animal. They're a beast. Nafs al-Amara, they're just uh, fulfilling their appetites. Then you reach the point of being a human, which is Nafs al-Lawama, you're driven by your conscience. Then you reach the point of being an angel. Nafs al-Mutma'inna, your soul is at peace with Allah, with, with how the world is designed. And someone who especially keeps listening to their appetites, there is something uh, below, which is not a, a label in the Quran, Nafsul Malhama, the soul that is just in chaos. Uh, and so that's another way where these same, those, so those three terms are in the Quran, and that's, uh, those are three different, two different schools that we, that we often find. Sami, um, oh, yes, that was, that was interesting. What is the difference between soul and spirit? That's a, that's a tougher one, uh, because it's the same word, ruh. So, so one of my, my teachers back in the day, uh, he would argue, this is in the academy side, he didn't like Holy Spirit as a translation for Ruh al-Quddus, like when Allah was saying in the Quran that he reinforced uh, Isa alayhi salam with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ruh al-Quddus, he preferred the sanctified soul. Uh, let's see, what about social structures that rely on prohibition of zina and the like? Abdullah, if you can expand on that question, even if it's like a 15-line question, go for it, inshallah. Uh, uh, Sadia, nafsul malhama, can you please give an example of chaos? So this is a person who just can't stop fulfilling their appetites, and so internally they're just in chaos. And, and, and so, uh, so the person who is always fulfilling their appetites we might call a hedonist, you know, or a glutton. But the person who has reached this point of malhama because of how much they've been feeding their appetites, this is almost the type of person you see as a character in a TV show or in a movie, but it is a real thing where they can't stop doing haram anytime they get the impulse of it. Uh, I'm trying to think of a fictional character that would be something like this. Uh, give it a moment. I'm thinking of well, this is a movie from the 1990s. This is way before everybody's time. Uh, let me let me uh, let me think. If you watch Quentin Tarantino movies, it would be something like that. Uh, Joker, maybe Joker. One of the issues he has from the start is 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 mental health. Um, and here we're not talking. Wolf of Wall Street would be a good example of that. Yeah, you know, these are people who have no boundaries and they're just totally, you know free to, to partake of, of what are appetites they, they, they want. Uh, Abdullah, going lax on certain things and not on others in non-Muslim lands. Yeah, um, you would still be following the social structures of, of that land, um, but not uh, uh, as, so in, in one very traditional view, if you're in Darul Harba, you're not worrying yourself about uh, about even Juma. You still have to make your daily prayers. That's basically all you do. And then you just stay within the general social uh, principles of the land. Uh, 
Gatsby, uh, I think for what Gatsby was able to do, I think part of the whole story of Gatsby was that he had everything of the dunya, but, you know, in terms of his own heart, he didn't, he, you know, he was still feeling very empty, you know. But it is a very Shakespearean type of character. You know, it seems like we're just throwing out characters. Of Mice and Men, I'm not, I'm not sure, Musab, if you, can, if you can connect that. This is almost like uh, a, a Shakespearean king, like Lear, uh, Lear is one of my favorite characters, and you know he has all of this power under his control. He can do whatever he wants, uh, but in his case, you know he's trying to get the love of his daughters, and he can't do that, especially one of them, Cordelia. Uh, what if Zina is part of the social structure? This is interesting. Zina, I don't think is ever going to be part of a lasting social structure. Social structure. Uh, um, of course, it's a big part of our society, you know, uh, right now to the point that, especially with pornography and everything, it's, it's almost, it's very hard to even avoid. But I don't think, I have trouble imagining a society where it's literally part of the social structure, if you understand what I'm saying. Like, it's not going to be an institution, it's going to be a vice. It's still going to be categorized as a vice. Uh, but uh, I suspect the default would be that you still stay away from, from those types of haram. And if, uh, since verse 40, we've seen quite a few prepositional phrases falling from remember when, remember, were those verses instructional to those who considered themselves descendants of children of Israel during the time of the prophet, peace be upon him? Would they have found all of these instances mentioned in their books or preserved orally? Oh, so for the first part, it seems as though these are, bam, here's another lesson from your story. Here's another lesson from your story. Here's another lesson from your story. Remember this about you. Remember this about you. And remember what Allah did for you here. And remember what Allah did for you here. Then here's how you responded. That, I would, I would make an educated guess to say that that's how they're receiving it. Uh, would they have found these instances mentioned in their books? Yes. Uh, or preserved orally. And, and so Abdullah did a wonderful thing for me. And I have... Uh, Mossab doing a different thing, uh, a similar assignment where uh, he's connecting these stories with the actual text in, 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 in the Bible. And so, so one thing I keep emphasizing for you and I is let's look specifically at the text. So if I was one of the Sahaba, one of the uh, uh, Ansar or, or Muhajirs, what am I going to see here, which is going to be different than what someone who is one of the Jews of Medina, what will they see? They're going to see backstory. And I've been trying to avoid backstory uh, quite a bit, except for uh, a couple of references. But yeah, I would say that these are these stories that they are familiar with. And today, these are stories that are still common in American Judaism. Uh, I don't remember if all of them are, though. But the common sentiment of American Judaism was that this is a population of people that, you know, that they didn't listen to God, and they went the wrong way. Any other questions about anything else? Nothing else. We got everything. Or reaching that point in, in Ramadan where everyone is even more drained. Tell you, if there wasn't social distancing or if there's a way, I'd say totally go to like some Target in some some uh, Muslim uh, majority society. And, and it's going to be funny for the next few days, everyone's totally going to be walking in slow motion. You know, some people actually have their hands in their bellies. I saw this last year. I was visiting my, my, my daughter in Virginia and we went to Target. And I was walking in slow motion, but everybody was walking in slow motion. Uh, 
Uh, let's see, please share the recording. So I will post it, inshallah, just to recap, uh, uh, tinyurl.com slash pandemic Quran class uh, two. That's the address. And we haven't had uh, much in terms of whiteboard stuff. We've had far little because there's less structure or theoretical stuff, the stuff that I need to uh, uh, build. Uh, uh, let's see, Virginia, not quite a Muslim majority country yet, uh, but where they were, uh, or where we were, the target we went to was like in Fairfax or something. And it's like every third person was brown of the Muslim persuasion. They had some really interesting restaurants there. Anyway, um, what else? How are you not drained talking all day long? Can't help you with that one. Okay. Or no, the question is, why are you all drained? That's the real question, or those of you who are drained. Okay. Can you answer my Sunnah prayer question? Oh, is this on Facebook? Okay, so so the basic question was, you know, why is it that, you know, one person is saying you have this many Sunnahs and, and another person is saying you have this many Sunnahs and such. There are differences of opinion in terms of those things regarding um, the the you know sunnahs and nafil. So I'm just going to give you the basic textbook Hanafi format. So so fajr. So two rakah sunnah, two rakah fard. Zohar. I'm going to do daisy spelling. Okay, well almost daisy spelling. Four rakah sunnah, four rakah fard, two rakah sunnah, two rakah nafil. Okay, asr. Asr is potentially not as required sunnahs, four rakats, and then four rakats fard. Two sunnahs before maghrib, three fard, two sunnahs, two nafils, and isha is Four sunnahs, sort of. Four fards mandatory, and then two uh, sunnahs to do, and then two nuffles, three withers, two nuffles. Hopefully, this is coherent. Okay. And then you throw in Ramadan, and then you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. The Ravis before the withers. Well, we're at the Hajjud. The hajjud is one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. As a general amount, if you want, I can add more, you know. We also have just, ish, ishraq. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any other questions about anything at all? Uh, quick question back to uh, 58 um, and you may have answered this but I'm still a little unclear because it seems like uh, I mean can we take this as like a command when God is saying enter this town and it seems easy enough eat freely of you know what's there and then just say this thing but do we have any like um, is there any reason why we think they substituted the word that they did like what it just seems like an easy command to follow Meaning, I don't find, uh, I, or no, I'll let me even go further. I've never found very much explanation for why this is happening, okay? Except that they're getting written off as, as these corrupt, vile people. Uh, 
and this behavior is so brazen, uh, I want to imagine there's some logic there. But no, I haven't found anything. You know. And I don't know anyone else like Dr. Mahan. You know anything in the background here? You know, Adan. Anyone else? For why they were doing something that seems so brazenly rebellious. I mean, to make the point further, when I made reference to the Quraysh, you know, and think about the fact that they're burying daughters, and they took it as such tradition that today we look at it as mind-bogglingly ridiculous. You know, how could you even consider this? But I'm imagining over the course of generations, this is something that's developing to what later becomes burying their daughters. That I wouldn't be surprised even if they had rituals that they were going through as part of the process of burying their daughters. You know, we would argue that, okay, they were a fiercely patriarchal society and daughters were looked at as a liability rather than an asset. So that would be a way to rationalize what they're thinking. But what I'm essentially suggesting is that even in the most absurd actions of any society, including our own in 2020, there's some amount of rationality there. Even if the root of it is rational, there's some rationality there. So think of these protesters. The protesters were just in Chicago yesterday too you know, who are waving around their flags and they're refusing to wear masks. And, I'm, and I suggest that, okay, these are people that are so terrified that, um, that their terror has gotten in, institutionalized and internalized because of Fox and Breitbart and many of their right-wing evangelical preachers and overcompensated them with arrogance and ultra-nationalism. Uh, that if they were being rational, <clears throat> they should have their masks on social distance and protest the fact that, look, as a government, you're telling us to stay, to stay at home, but you're not giving us a way to have income, which means we can't eat. Good. That would be a rational protest Good. that I think is still in the seed of what they're saying. But the way they're manifesting is, is absolutely absurd. And so, so my thought is that there has to be something rational in terms of why Bunny Israel is doing this, but the conclusion, the way they're manifesting it, is is ridiculous. You know, maybe on that has... note, what sorry, on on that note, what would you say of the Muslims who are sneaking into the masajids to pray in okay. uh, in small groups? Okay, I'll come to that in a second, inshallah. Also, but um, so uh, suppose, and this is related to a hint that's uh, that someone suggested, maybe they're testing. Okay, if Allah says He's forgiven them, how much has He really forgiven us? And which the behavior they're manifesting is the behavior of a child, okay. but uh, uh, but you know there is some seemingly rational thought that's part of it. Okay. But yeah, uh, you're at this point your guess is as good as mine. Um, you know, glancing at this story over and over again over the years that I've been going through Al Baqarah, um, I haven't come across anything beyond just them being written off completely. And I'm also suggesting that uh, the vast majority of commentaries on the Quran are written by people, even if they're in a Muslim minority society, it is not with that much access, interaction uh, with Christians and, and Jews in particular, you know, especially at the level of laity. Could it be, uh, could it just be psychological? I'll get back to your question, Dr. Azinshaw. Could it just be psychological instead of rational? Were they just craving more and more attention? Yeah. Possibly. 
they could have asked for it. Uh, sometimes kids behave this way when they're told to do all the opposite when you ask them and to do just because they want to tease. So the best strategy is to leave them alone and no attention and they are fine. Could there be a connection? Yeah, I think absolutely. In the same way that I was speaking of the maturity and intellect of, of jinns in general and shaitan in particular as being that of a child, the behavior here is the behavior of a child, you know, uh, especially at this point where we are, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do this unless you give this to me, right? It's the behavior of a child. And, and so what I'm suggesting is that I'm still looking at the whole thing as a, as, as a, a statement on their maturity, which would put this more in the psychological realm. But even as adults, they're probably doing some thinking through process. It's hard for me to think that these are just, that people are just that vile, but maybe they are. Uh, Dr. Kazi, your question, you're, you're saying, okay, can I make a connection with, you know, Muslims that are going to the masjid? Uh, I do, I mean, a point I made before is I do think a lot of times people confuse Iman or def they confuse defiance with Iman. That, all right, if I'm standing up to, to and spitting in the face of this authority, then therefore that is Iman. I think that is very parallel with the protesters, yep. uh, especially those that, that you know, sort of syncretize their Christianity, their particular approach to Christianity with their nationalism, with their political stances. Um, and that's a type of arrogance. Yeah. Uh, I do think that there are some that are just coming to a wrong conclusion or conclusion that I disagree with. Any other thoughts or questions? Alrighty. Then, inshallah, we will stop right here, and we'll continue tomorrow. And this story is going to get even worse. Okay. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubu ilayk. May Allah tell you all, inshallah. Wa akhri da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.